0: And stink. It's your old pal, the Drip Keeper, here with a double dose of devilish divulgence. Both brought to us by master of the macabre, Ray Bradbury, so you can be sure that something wicked definitely this way comes. Our first story is about a man who isn't a big fan of the fall season, or his wife. This tale is ghoulishly entitled the October game.
1: He put the gun back into the bureau drawer and shut the drawer. No, not that way. Luis wouldn't suffer. It was very important that this thing have, above all, duration. Duration through imagination. How to prolong the suffering. How, first of all, to bring it about. Well... The man standing before the bedroom mirror carefully fitted his cufflinks together. He paused long enough to hear the children run by swiftly on the street below, outside this warm two-story house, like so many gray mice, the children, like so many leaves. By the sound of the children, you knew the calendar day. By their screams, you knew what evening it was. You knew it was very late in the year. October. The last day of October with white bone masks and cut pumpkins and the smell of dropped candle wax. No, things hadn't been right for some time. October didn't help any. If anything, it made it worse. He adjusted his black bow tie. If this were spring, he nodded slowly, quietly, emotionlessly, at his image in the mirror. Then there might be a chance. But tonight, all the world was burning down into ruin. There was no green spring. "'None of the freshness, none of the promise. "'There was a soft running in the hall. "'That's Marion,' he told himself. "'My little one.' "'All eight quiet years of her. "'Never a word. "'Just her luminous gray eyes "'and her wondering little mouth. "'His daughter had been in and out all evening, "'trying on various masks, "'asking him which one was the most terrifying, "'most horrible. "'They had both finally decided on the skeleton mask. "'It was just awful.' It would scare the beans from people. Again, he caught the long look of thought and deliberation he gave himself in the mirror. He had never liked October, ever since he first lay in the autumn leaves before his grandmother's house many years ago and heard the wind and sway of the empty trees. It has made him cry without a reason. And a little of that sadness returned each year to him. That always went away with the spring, but it was different tonight. There was a feeling of autumn coming to last a million years. There would be no spring. He had been crying quietly all evening. It did not show, not a vestige of it, on his face. It was all hidden somewhere, and it wouldn't stop. Louise had managed to be in every other room save the room he was in today. It was her very fine way of intimidating. Oh, look, Mitch, see how busy I am. So busy that when you walk into a room I'm in, there's always something I need to do in another room. Just see how I dash about. For a while, he had played a little game with her, a nasty childish game. When she was in the kitchen and he came to the kitchen saying, I need a glass of water. After a moment, he standing, drinking water, she, like a crystal witch over the caramel brew bubbling like a prehistoric mud pot on the stove, she said, oh, I must light the pumpkins. And she rushed to the living room to make the pumpkin smile with light. "'He came after, smiling. "'I must get my pipe. "'Oh, the cider,' she had cried, "'running to the dining room. "'I'll check the cider.' "'I'll check the cider,' he had said. "'But when he tried following, "'she ran to the bathroom and locked the door. "'He stood outside the bathroom door, "'laughing strangely and senselessly, "'his pipe gone cold in his mouth. "'And then, tired of the game, but stubborn, "'he waited another five minutes. "'There was not a sound from the bath.' Unless she enjoy in any way knowing that he waited outside, irritated, he suddenly jerked about and walked upstairs, whistling merrily. At the top of the stairs he had waited. Finally, he had heard the bathroom door unlatch, and she had come out and life below stairs had resumed, as life in a jungle must resume once a terror has passed on away and the antelope returned to their spring. Now, as he finished his bow tie and put on his dark coat, there was a mouse rustle in the hall. Marion appeared in the door, all skeletons in her disguise. How do I look, Papa? Fine. From under the mask, blonde hair showed. From the skull sockets, small blue eyes smiled. He sighed. Marion and Louise, the two silent denouncers of his virility, his dark power. What alchemy had there been in Louise that took the dark of a dark man and bleached the dark brown eyes and black hair and washed and bleached the ingrown baby all during the period before birth until the child was born, Marion, blonde, blue-eyed, ruddy-cheeked. Sometimes he suspected that Louise had conceived the child as an idea, completely asexual, an immaculate conception of contemptuous mind and cell. As a firm rebuke to him, she had produced a child in her own image, and, to top it, she had somehow fixed the doctor, so he shook his head and said, "'Sorry, Mr. Wilder, your wife will never have another child.' This is the last one. And I wanted a boy, Mitch had said eight years ago. He almost bent to take hold of Marion now, in her skull mask. He felt an inexplicable rush of pity for her, because she had never had a father's love, only the crushing, holding love of a loveless mother. But most of all, he pitied himself, that somehow he had not made the most of a bad birth, enjoyed his daughter for herself, "'regardless of her not being dark and a son and like himself. "'Somewhere he had missed out, other things being equal. "'He would have loved the child. "'But Louise hadn't wanted a child anyway in the first place. "'She had been frightened of the idea of birth. "'He had forced the child on her, "'and from that night all through the year "'until the agony of the birth itself, "'Louise had lived in another part of the house. "'She had expected to die with the forced child.' It had been very easy for Louise to hate this husband who so wanted a son that he gave his only wife over to the mortuary. But Louise had lived, and in triumph. Her eyes, the day he came to the hospital, were cold. I'm alive, they said, and I have a blonde daughter. Just look. And when he had put out a hand to touch, the mother had turned away to conspire with their new pink daughter, child. Away from that dark forcing murderer. It had all been so beautifully ironic. His selfishness deserved it. But now it was October again. There had been other Octobers, and when he thought of the long winter, he had been filled with horror year after year to think of the endless months mortared into the house by an insane fall of snow, trapped with a woman and child, neither of whom loved him for months on end. During the eight years there had been respites. In spring and summer you got out, walked, picnicked, These were desperate solutions to the desperate problem of a hated man. But, in winter, the hikes and picnics and escapes fell away with leaves. Life, like a tree, stood empty. The fruit picked, the sap run to earth. Yes, you invited people in, but people were hard to get in winter, with blizzards and all. Once he had been clever enough to save for a Florida trip. They had gone south. He had walked in the open. But now, the eighth winter coming... He knew things were finally at an end. He simply could not wear this one through. There was an acid walled off in him that slowly had eaten through tissue and bone over the years, and now, tonight, it would reach the wild explosive in him and it would all be over. There was a mad ringing of the bell now, in the hall. Luis went to see. Marion, without a word, ran down to greet the first arrivals. There were shouts and hilarity. He walked to the top of the stairs. Louise was below, taking wraps. She was tall and slender and blonde to the point of whiteness, laughing down upon the new children. He hesitated. What was all this, the years, the boredom of living? Where had it gone wrong? Certainly not with the birth of a child alone. But it had been a symbol of all their tensions, he imagined. His jealousies and his business failures and all the rotten rest of it. Why didn't he just turn, pack a suitcase and leave? No. Not without hurting Louise as much as she had hurt him. It was as simple as that. Divorce wouldn't hurt her at all. It would simply be an end to the numb indecision. If he thought divorce would give her pleasure in any way, he would stay married for the rest of his life to her, for damn spite. No, he must hurt her. Figure some way, perhaps, to take Marion away from her, legally. Yes, that was it. That would hurt most of all, to take Marion away. Hello down there. He descended the stairs, beaming. Louise didn't look up. Hi, Mr. Wilder. The children shouted, waved as he came down. By ten o'clock, the doorbell had stopped ringing. The apples were bitten from string doors, the pink faces were wiped dry from the apple bobbling, napkins were smeared with toffee and punch, and he, the husband, with pleasant efficiency, had taken over. He took the party right out of Louise's hands. He ran about talking to the twenty children and the twelve parents who had come and were happy with the special spike cider he had fixed them. He supervised pin the tail on the donkey, spin the bottle, musical chairs, and all the rest, amid fits of shouting laughter. Then, in the triangular-eyed pumpkin shine, all house lights out, he cried, Hush, follow me, tiptoeing towards the cellar. The parents, on the outer periphery of the costume briot, commented to each other, nodding at the clever husband speaking to the lucky wife. How well he got on with the children, they said. The children crowded after the husband, squealing. The cellar, he cried. The tomb of the witch. More squealing. He made a mock shiver. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. The parents chuckled. One by one, the children slid down a slide, which Mitch had fixed up from lengths of table section into the dark cellar. He hissed and shouted ghastly utterances after them a wonderful, wailing-filled, dark, pumpkin-lighted house. Everyone talked at once, everyone but Marian. She had gone through all the party with a minimum of sound or talk. It was all inside her, all the excitement and joy. What a little troll, he thought. With a shut mouth and shiny eyes, she had watched her own party, like so many serpentines thrown before her. Now the parents, with laughing reluctance, they slid down the short incline, uproarious, while little Marion stood by always wanting to see it all, to be last. Louise went down without help. He moved to aid her, but she was gone even before he bent. The upper house was empty and silent in the candle shine. Marion stood by the slide. Here we go, he said, and picked her up. They sat in a vast circle in the cellar. Warmth came from the distant bulk of the furnace. The chairs stood in a long line along each wall. Twenty squealing children, twelve rustling relatives, "'alternatively spaced, with Luis down at the far end, "'Mitch up at this end, near the stairs. "'He appeared but saw nothing. "'They had all grouped to their chairs. "'Catch as you can in the blackness. "'The entire program from here on was to be enacted in the dark, "'he as Mr. Interlocutor. "'There was a child scampering, a smell of damp cement, "'and the sound of the wind out in the October stars. "'Now!' he cried, the husband in the dark cellar. "'Quiet!' everybody settled. The room was black, black. Not a light, not a shine, not a glint of an eye. A scraping of crockery, a metal rattle. The witch is dead, intoned the husband. "Ee," said the children. The witch is dead. She has been killed, and here is the knife she was killed with. He handed over the knife. It was passed from hand to hand, down and around the circle with chuckles and little odd cries and comments from the adults. "'The witch is dead, and this is her head,' whispered the husband, and handed an item to the nearest person. "'Oh, I know how this game is played,' some child cried happily in the dark. "'He gets some old chicken innards from the icebox and hands them around and says, "'These are her innards,' and he makes a clay head and passes it for her head, and passes a soup bone for her arm, and he takes a marble and says, "'This is her eye,' and he takes some corn and says these are her teeth, and he takes a sack of plum pudding and says this is her stomach. I know how this is played. Hush, you'll spoil everything, some girl said. The witch came to harm, and this is her arm, said Mitch. The items were passed and passed like hot potatoes around the circle. Some children screamed, wouldn't touch them, Some ran from their chairs to stand in the center of the cellar until the grisly items had passed. Ah, it's only chicken inside, scoffed the boy. Come back, Helen. Shot from hand to hand, with small scream after scream, the items went down, down, to be followed by another and another. The witch cut apart, and this is her heart, said the husband. Six or seven items moving at once through the laughing, trembling dark. Louise spoke up. Marion, don't be afraid. It's only play. Marion didn't say anything. Marion, asked Louise, are you afraid? Marion didn't speak. She's all right, said the husband. She's not afraid. On and on, the passing, the screams, the hilarity. The autumn wind sighed about the house, and he, the husband, stood at the head of the dark cellar, intoning the words, handing out the items. Marion, asked Louise again from far across the cellar, Everybody was talking. Marion called Louise. Everybody quieted. Marion, answer me. Are you afraid? Marion didn't answer. The husband stood there at the bottom of the cellar steps. Louise called. Marion, are you there? No answer. The room was silent. Where's Marion? Called Louise. She was here, said a boy. Maybe she's upstairs. Marion? No answer. It was quiet. Louise cried out. Marion, Marion! Turn on the lights, said one of the adults. The items stopped passing. The children and adults sat with the witch's items in their hands. No, Louise gasped. There was a scraping of her chair, wildly, in the dark. No, don't turn on the lights. Oh, God, 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 don't turn them on. Please, don't turn on the lights. Don't. Louise was shrieking now. The entire cellar froze with the scream. Nobody moved. Everyone sat in the dark cellar, suspended in the suddenly frozen task of this October game. "'The wind blew outside, banging in the house. "'The smell of pumpkins and apples filled the room "'with the smell of the objects in their fingers "'while one boy cried, "'I'll go upstairs and look.' "'And he ran upstairs, hopefully, "'and out around the house, four times around the house, "'calling Marion, 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 over and over, "'and at last coming slowly down the stairs "'into the waiting, breathing cellar "'and saying to the darkness, "'I can't find her.' "'Then, some idiot turned on the lights.'
0: Sounds like this year, Luis got more of a trick than a treat. Better luck next Halloween. Our next nasty little nugget is the story of Lavinia Nebs and a crazed killer known as the Lonely One. A perfect night on the town might become Lavinia's worst nightmare in... The whole town is sleeping.
1: The courthouse clock chimed seven times the echoes of the chimes faded. Warm summer twilight here in upper Illinois country, in this little town deep far away from everything, kept to itself by a river and a forest and a meadow and a lake. The sidewalks still scorched, the stores closing and the streets shadowed, and there were two moons. The clock moon, with four faces in four night directions above the solemn black courthouse, and the real moon rising in vanilla whiteness from the dark east. In the drugstore, fans whispered in the high ceiling. In the rococo shade of porches, a few invisible people sat. Cigars glowed pink on occasion. Screen doors whined their springs and slammed. On the purple bricks of the summer night streets, Douglas Spaulding ran. Dogs and boys followed after. "'Hi, Miss Lavinia!' The boys loped away, waving after them quietly. Lavinia Neb sat all alone with a tall, cool lemonade in her white fingers, tapping it to her lips, sipping, waiting. Here I am, Lavinia. She turned, and there was Francine, all in snow white, at the bottom steps of the porch, in the smell of zinnias and hibiscus. Lavinia Nebs locked her front door and, leaving her lemonade glass half empty on the porch, said, It's a fine night for a movie. They walked down the street. Where are you going, girls? cried Miss Fern and Miss Roberta from their porch over the way. Lavinia called back through the soft ocean of darkness to the elite theater to see Charlie Chaplin. Won't catch us out on no night like this, wailed Miss Fern. Not with the lonely ones strangling women. Lock ourselves up in our closet with a gun. Oh, bosh. Lavinia heard the old woman's door bang and lock, and she drifted on, feeling the warm breath of summer night shimmering off the oven-baked sidewalks. It was like walking on a hard crust of freshly warm bread. The heat pulsed under your dress, along your legs, with a stealthy and not unpleasant sense of invasion. Lavinia, you don't believe all that about the lonely one, do you? Those women just like to see their tongues dance. Just the same. Hattie McDollas was killed two months ago, Roberta Ferry the month before, and now Elizabeth Ramsell's disappeared. Hattie McDollas was a silly girl, walked off with a traveling man, I bet. But the others, all of them, strangled their tongues sticking out of their mouths, they say. They stood upon the edge of the ravine that cut the town half in two. Behind them were the lit houses and music. Ahead was deepness, moistness, fireflies, and dark. Maybe we shouldn't go to the show tonight, said Francine. The lonely one might follow us and kill us. I don't like that ravine. Look at it, will you? Lavinia looked, and the ravine was a dynamo that never stopped running, night or day. There was a great moving hum, a bumbling and murmuring of creature, insect, or plant life. It smelled like a greenhouse of secret vapors and ancient washed shales and quicksands, and always the black dynamo humming with sparkles like great electricity where fireflies moved on the air. It won't be me coming back through this old ravine tonight late, so darned late. It'll be you, Lavinia, you down the steps and over the bridge, and maybe the lonely one there. Bosh, said Lavinia Nebs. It'll be you alone on the path, listening to your shoes, not me. You all alone on the way back to your house. Lavinia, don't you get lonely living in that house? Old maids love to live alone. Lavinia pointed at the hot, shadowy path leading down into the dark. Let's take the shortcut. I'm afraid. It's early. Lonely one won't be out till late. Lavinia took the other's arm and led her down and down the crooked path into the cricket warmth and frog sound and mosquito-delicate silence. They brushed through summer-scorched grass, burrs prickling at their bare ankles. "'Let's run,' gasped Francine. "'No!' They turned a curve in the path, and there it was. In the singing deep night, in the shade of warm trees, as if she had laid herself out to enjoy the soft stars and the easy wind, her hands at either side of her, like the oars of a delicate craft, lay Elizabeth Ramsell. Francine screamed. "'Don't scream!' Lavinia put out her hands to hold on to Francine, who was whimpering and choking. Don't! Don't! The woman lay as if she had floated there, her face moonlit, her eyes wide and like flint, her tongue sticking from her mouth. She's dead, said Francine. Oh, she's dead! Dead! She's dead! Lavinia stood in the middle of a thousand warm shadows, with the crickets screaming and the frogs loud. We'd better get the police she said at last. Hold me, Lavinia, hold me. I'm cold. Oh, I've never been so cold in all my life. Lavinia held Francine, and the policemen were brushing through the crackling grass. Flashlights ducked about, voices mingled, and the night grew toward 830. It's like December. I need a sweater, said Francine, eyes shut against Lavinia. The policeman said, I guess you can go now, ladies. You might drop by the station tomorrow for a little more questioning. Lavinia and Francine walked away from the police, and the sheet over the delicate thing upon the ravine grass. Lavinia felt her heart going loudly in her, and she was cold, too, with a February cold. There were bits of sudden snow all over her flesh, and the moon washed her brittle fingers whiter, and she remembered doing all the talking while Francine just sobbed against her. A voice called from far off. You want an escort, ladies? No, we'll make it, said Lavinia to nobody and they walked on. They walked through the nuzzling, whispering ravine. The ravine of whispers and clicks, the little world of investigation growing small behind them, with its lights and voices. "'I've never seen a dead person before,' said Francine. Lavinia examined her watch, as if it was a thousand miles away, on an arm and wrist grown impossibly distant. "'It's only 8.30. We'll pick up Helen and get on to the show.' "'The show?' Francine jerked. "'It's what we need.' We've got to forget this. It's not good to remember. If we went home now, we'd remember. We'll go to the show as if nothing happened. Lavinia, you don't mean it. I never meant anything more in my life. We need to laugh now and forget. But Elizabeth's back there. Your friend. My friend. We can't help her. We can only help ourselves. Come on. They started up the ravine side on the stony path in the dark. And suddenly there, barring their way, standing very still on one spot, not seeing them, but looking on down at the moving lights and the body and listening to the official voices, was Douglas Spaulding. He stood there, white as a mushroom, with his hands at his sides, staring down into the ravine. "'Get home!' cried Francine. He did not hear. "'You!' shrieked Francine. "'Get home! Get out of this place, you hear? Get home! Get home! Get home!' Douglas jerked his head, stared at them as if they were not there. His mouth moved. He gave a bleeding sound. Then, silently, he whirled about and ran. He ran silently up the distant hills into the warm darkness. Francine sobbed and cried again, and doing this, walked on with Lavinia nebs. "'There you are. I thought you ladies had never come.' Helen Greer stood tapping her foot atop her porch steps. "'You're only an hour late, that's all. What happened?' We started Francine. Lavinia clutched her arm tight. There was a commotion. Somebody found Elizabeth Ramsel in the ravine. Dead? Was she dead? Lavinia nodded. Helen gasped and put her hand to her throat. Who found her? Lavinia held Francine's wrist firmly. We don't know. The three young women stood in the summer night looking at each other. I've got a notion to go in the house and lock the doors, said Helen at last. But finally, she went to get a sweater, for though it was still warm, she too complained of the sudden winter night. While she was gone, Francine whispered frantically, Why didn't you tell her? Why upset her? said Lavinia. Tomorrow. Tomorrow's plenty of time. The three women moved along the street under the black trees, past suddenly locked houses. How soon the news had spread outward from the ravine from house to house, porch to porch, telephone to telephone. Now, passing, the three women felt eyes looking out at them from curtained windows as locks rattled into place. How strange the popsicle, the vanilla night, the night of close-packed ice cream, of mosquito-lotioned wrists, the night of running children suddenly veered from their games and put away behind glass, behind wood, the popsicles and melting puddles of lime and strawberry where they fell when the children were scooped indoors. Strange, the hot rooms with the sweating people pressed tightly back into them, behind the bronze knobs and knockers. Baseball bats and balls lay upon the unfootprinted lawns. A half-drawn, white chalk game of hopscotch lay on the broiled, steam sidewalk. It was as if someone had predicted freezing weather a moment ago. We're crazy, being out on a night like this, said Helen. Only one won't kill three ladies, said Lavinia. There's safety in numbers, and besides, it's too soon. The killings always come a month separated. A shadow fell across their terrified faces. A figure loomed behind a tree. As if someone had struck an organ a terrible blow with his fist, the three women gave off a scream in three different shrill notes. Got you, roared a voice. The man plunged at them. He came into the light laughing. He leaned against a tree pointing at the ladies weakly, laughing again. Hey, I'm the lonely one, said Frank Dillon. Frank Dillon. Frank? Frank, said Lavinia. If you ever do a childish thing like that again, may someone riddle you with bullets. What a thing to do. Francine began to cry hysterically. Frank Dillon stopped smiling. Say, I'm sorry. Go away, said Lavinia. Haven't you heard about Elizabeth Ramsell? found dead in the ravine. You running around scaring women? Don't speak to us again. Oh, now. They moved. He moved to follow. Stay right there, Mr. Lonely One, and scare yourself. Go take a look at Elizabeth Ramsell's face and see if it's funny. Good night. Lavinia took the other two on along the street of trees and stars, Francine holding a kerchief to her face. Francine, it was only a joke, Helen turned to Lavinia. Why is she crying so hard? We'll tell you when we get downtown. We're going to the show no matter what. Enough's enough. Come on now, get your money ready. We're almost there. The drugstore was a small pool of sluggish air, which the great wooden fans stirred in tides of arnica and tonic and soda smell out onto the brick streets. I need a nickel's worth of green peppermint shoes, said Lavinia to the druggist. His face was set and pale, like all the faces they had seen on the half-empty streets. For eating in the show said Lavinia, as the druggist weighed out a nickel's worth of the green candy with a silver shovel. You sure look pretty tonight, ladies. You looked cool this afternoon, Miss Lavinia, when he was in for a chocolate soda. So cool and nice that someone asked after you. Oh? Man sitting at the counter, watched you walk out, said to me, "'Say, who's that?' "'Why, that's Lavinia Nebs, prettiest maiden lady in town,' I said. "'She's beautiful,' he said. "'Where does she live?' Here, the druggist paused uncomfortably. You didn't, said Francine. You didn't give him her address, I hope. You didn't. I guess I didn't think. I said, oh, over on Park Street, you know, near the ravine. A casual remark. But now, tonight? Them finding the body? I heard a minute ago. I thought, my God, what have I done? He handed over the candy. You fool, cried Francine, and tears were in her eyes. I'm sorry. Of course, maybe it was nothing. Lavinia stood with the three people looking at her, staring at her. She felt nothing, except perhaps the slightest prickle of excitement in her throat. She held out her money automatically. There's no charge on those peppermints, said the druggist, turning to shuffle some papers. Well, I know what I'm going to do right now. Helen stalked out of the drug shop. I'm calling a taxi to take us all home. I'll be no part of a hunting party for you, Lavinia. That man was up to no good. Asking about you... You want to be dead in the ravine next? It was just a man, said Lavinia, turning in a slow circle to a look at the town. So is Frank Dillon a man, but maybe he's the lonely one. Francine hadn't come out with them. they noticed, and turning, they found her arriving. I made him give me a description, the druggist. I made him tell me what the man looked like. A stranger, she said, in a dark suit, sort of pale and thin. "'We're all overwrought,' said Lavinia. "'I simply won't take a taxi if you get one. "'If I'm the next victim, let me be the next. "'There's all too little excitement in life, "'especially for a maiden lady 33 years old, "'so don't you mind if I enjoy it. "'Anyway, it's silly. I'm not beautiful. "'Oh, but you are, Lavinia. "'You're the loveliest lady in town, "'now that Elizabeth is—' "'Francine stopped. "'You keep men off at a distance. "'If you'd only relax, you'd be married years ago. "'Stop sniveling, Francine.' Here's the theater box office. I'm paying 41 cents to see Charlie Chaplin. If you two want a taxi, go on. I'll sit alone and go home alone. Lavinia, you're crazy. We can't let you do that. They entered the theater. The first showing was over. Intermission was on, and the dim auditorium was sparsely populated. The three ladies sat halfway down front in the smell of an ancient brass polish and watched the manager step through the worn red velvet curtains to make an announcement. The police have asked us to close early tonight so everyone can be out at a decent hour. Therefore, we are cutting our short subjects and running our feature again immediately. The show will be over at 11. Everyone is advised to go straight home. Don't linger in the streets. That means us, Lavinia, whispered Francine. The lights went out. The screen leaped to life. Lavinia, whispered Helen. What? As we came in, a man in a dark suit across the street crossed over. He just walked down the aisle and is sitting in the row behind us. Oh, Helen. Right behind us? One by one, the three women turned to look. They saw a white face there, flickering with unholy light from the silver screen. It seemed to be all men's faces hovering there in the dark. I'm going to get the manager. Helen was gone up the aisle. Stop the film. Lights. Helen, come back, cried Lavinia, rising. They tapped their empty soda glasses down, each with a vanilla mustache on their upper lip which they found with their tongues laughing. You see how silly, said Lavinia, all that riot for nothing. How embarrassing. I'm sorry, said Helen faintly. The clock set eleven thirty now. They had come out of the dark theater, away from the fluttering rush of men and women hurrying everywhere, nowhere, on the street while laughing at Helen. Helen was trying to laugh at herself. Helen, when you ran up the aisle crying, lights, I thought I'd die, that poor man the theater manager's brother from Racine. I apologized, said Helen, looking up at the great fan still whirling, whirling the warm, late-night air, stirring, restirring the smells of vanilla, raspberry, peppermint, and Lysol. We shouldn't have stopped for these sodas, the police warned. Oh, bosh, the police, laughed Lavinia. I'm not afraid of anything. The lonely one is a million miles away now. He won't be back for weeks, and the police will get him then. Just wait. Wasn't the film wonderful? Closing up, ladies, the druggists switched off the lights in the cool white-tiled silence. Outside, the streets were swept clean and empty of cars or trucks or people. Bright lights still burned in the small store windows, where the warm wax tummies lifted pink wax hands fired with blue-white diamond rings or flourished orange wax legs to reveal hosiery. The hot blue glass eyes of the mannequins watched as the ladies drifted down the empty river bottom street, their images shimmering in the windows, like blossoms seen under darkly moving waters. Do you suppose if we screamed they'd do anything? Who? The dummies. The window people. Oh, Francine. Well, there were a thousand people in the windows, stiff and silent, and three people on the street the echoes following like gunshots from storefronts across the way when they tapped their heels on the baked pavement. A red neon sign flickered dimly, buzzed like a dying insect, as they passed. Baked and white, the long avenues lay ahead, blowing and tall in a wind that touched only their leafy summits. The trees stood on either side of the three small women. Seen from the courthouse peak, they appeared like three thistles from far away. 1st we'll walk you home, Francine.' "'No, I'll walk you home. Don't be silly. You live way out at Electric Park. If you walked me home, you'd have to come back across the ravine alone yourself, and if so much as a leaf fell on you, you'd drop dead.' Francine said, "'I can stay the night at your house. You're the pretty one.' And so they walked. They drifted like three prim-clothed forms over a moonlit sea of lawn and concrete, Lavinia watching the black trees flit by each side of her, listening to the voices of her friends murmuring, trying to laugh. And the night seemed to quicken. They seemed to run while walking slowly. Everything seemed fast and the color of hot snow. "'Let's sing,' said Lavinia. They sang, "'Shine on, shine on, harvest moon.' They sang sweetly and quietly, arm in arm, not looking back. They felt the hot sidewalk cooling underfoot, moving, moving. "'Listen,' said Lavinia they listened to the summer night. The summer night crickets and the far-off tone of the courthouse clock, making it eleven forty-five. Listen. Lavinia listened. A porch swing creaked in the dark, and there was Mr. Turl, not saying anything to anybody, alone on his swing, having a last cigar. They saw the pink ash swinging gently to and fro. Now the lights were going, going, gone the little house lights and big house lights and yellow lights and green hurricane lights, the candles and oil lamps and porch lights, and everything felt locked up in brass and iron and steel. Everything, thought Lavinia, is boxed and locked and wrapped and shaded. She imagined the people in their moonlit beds and their breathing in the summer night rooms, safe and together. And here we are, thought Lavinia, our footsteps on along the baked summer evening sidewalk. And above us the lonely street lights shining down, making a drunken shadow. Here's your house, Francine. Good night. Lavinia, Helen, stay here tonight. It's late, almost midnight now. You can sleep in the parlor. I'll make hot chocolate. It'll be such fun. Francine was holding them both now, close to her. No, thanks, said Lavinia. And Francine began to cry. Oh, not again, Francine, said Lavinia. I don't want you dead, sobbed Francine, the tears running straight down her cheeks. You're so fine and nice. I want you alive. Please, oh, please. Francine, I didn't know how much this had done to you. I promise I'll phone when I get home. Oh, will you? And tell you I'm safe, yes. And tomorrow we'll have a picnic lunch at Electric Park. With ham sandwiches I'll make myself. How's that? You'll see. I'll live forever. You'll phone then? I promised, didn't I? Good night, good night. Good night. Rushing upstairs, Francine whisked behind a door, which slammed to be snap bolted tight on the instant. Now, said Lavinia to Helen, I'll walk you home. The courthouse clock struck the hour. The sounds blew across a town that was empty. Emptier and emptier the sounds blew across a town that was empty. Emptier than it had ever been. Over empty streets and empty lots and empty lawns, the sound faded. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, counted Lavinia with Helen on her arm. Don't you feel funny, asked Helen. How do you mean? When you think of us being out here on the sidewalks, under the trees, and all those people safe behind locked doors, lying in their beds, we're practically the only walking people out in the open in a thousand miles, I bet. The sound of the deep, warm, dark ravine came near. In a minute, they stood before Helen's house, looking at each other for a long time. The wind blew the odor of cut grass between them. "'The moon was sinking in a sky that was beginning to cloud. "'I don't suppose it's any use asking you to stay, Lavinia? "'I'll be going on. "'Sometimes... "'Sometimes what? "'Sometimes I think people want to die. "'You've acted odd all evening.' "'I'm just not afraid,' said Lavinia. "'And I'm curious, I suppose. "'And I'm using my head. "'Logically, the lonely one can't be around. "'The police and all. "'The police are home with their covers up to their ears.' Let's just say I'm enjoying myself, precariously, but safely. If there was any real chance of anything happening to me, I'd stay here with you. You can be sure of that. Maybe part of you doesn't want to live anymore. You and Francine, honestly. I feel so guilty. I'll be drinking some hot cocoa just as you reach the ravine bottom and walk on the bridge. Drink a cup for me. Good night. Lavinia Nebs walked alone down the midnight street, down the late summer night silence. She saw houses with the dark windows, and far away, she heard a dog barking. In five minutes, she thought, I'll be safe at home. In five minutes, I'll be phoning silly little Francine, I'll... She heard the man's voice, a man's voice singing far away among the trees. Oh, give me a June night, the moonlight, and you. She walked a little faster. The voice sang, in my arms, with all your charms, down the street. In the dim moonlight, a man walked slowly and casually along. I can run knock on one of these doors, thought Lavinia, if I must. Oh, give me a June night, sang the man, and he carried a long club in his hand. The moonlight, and you. Well, look who's here. What a time of night for you to be out, Miss Nebs. Officer Kennedy. And that's who it was, of course. I'd better see you home. Thanks, I'll make it. But you live across the ravine. Yes, she thought, but I won't walk through the ravine with any man, not even an officer. How do I know who the lonely one is? No, she said, I'll hurry. I'll wait right here, he said. If you need any help, give a yell. Voices carry good here. I'll come running. Thank you. She went on, leaving him under a light, humming to himself, alone. Here I am, she thought. The ravine. She stood on the edge of the 113 steps that went down the steep hill, and then across the bridge 70 yards and up the hills leading to Park Street, and only one lantern to see by. Three minutes from now, she thought, I'll be putting my key in my house door. Nothing can happen in just 180 seconds. She started down the long, dark green steps into the deep ravine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten steps, she counted in a whisper. She felt she was running. But she was not running. Fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty steps, she breathed. One-fifth of the way, she announced to herself. The ravine was deep, black and black, black. And the world was gone behind. The world of safe people in bed, the locked doors, the town, the drugstore, the theater, the lights. Everything was gone. Only the ravine existed and lived, black and huge, about her. Nothing's happened, has it? No one around, is there? 24, 25 steps. Remember that old ghost story you told each other when you were children? She listened to her shoes on the steps. The story about the dark man coming in your house and you upstairs in bed. And now he's at the first step coming up to your room. And now he's at the second step. And now he's at the third step and the fourth step and the fifth. Oh, how you used to laugh and scream at that story. And now the horrid dark man's at the 12th step. And now he's opening the door of your room And now he's standing by your bed. I got you. She screamed. It was like nothing she'd ever heard, that scream. She had never screamed that loud in her life. She stopped. She froze. She clung to the wooden banister. Her heart exploded in her. The sound of the terrified beating filled the universe. There, there. She screamed to herself. At the bottom of the steps. A man. Under the light. No, now he's gone. He was waiting there. She listened. Silence. The bridge was empty. Nothing, she thought, holding her heart. Nothing. Fool. That story I told myself. How silly. What shall I do? Her heartbeats faded. Shall I call the officer? Did he hear me scream? She listened. Nothing. Nothing. I'll go the rest of the way. That silly story. She began again, counting the steps. 35, 36. Careful, don't fall. Oh, I am a fool. 37 steps. 38, 9 and 40. And two makes 42. Almost halfway. She froze again. Wait, she told herself. She took a step. There was an echo. She took another step. Another echo. Another step. Just a fraction of a moment later. Someone's following me, she whispered to the ravine to the black crickets and dark green hidden frogs in the black stream. Someone's on the steps behind me. I don't dare turn around. Another step, another echo. Every time I take a step, they take one. A step and an echo. Weakly, she asked of the ravine, Officer Kennedy, is that you? The crickets were still. The crickets were listening. The night was listening to her. For a change, All of the far summer night meadows and close summer night trees were suspending motion. Leaf, shrub, star, and meadow grass ceased their particular tremors and were listening to Lavinia Neb's heart. And perhaps a thousand miles away, across locomotive lonely country, in an empty way station, a single traveler reading a dim newspaper under a solitary naked bulb might raise up his head, listen and think, what's that? And decide only a woodchuck, surely, beating on a hollow log. But it was Lavinia Nabs. It was most surely the heart of Lavinia Nabs. Silence. A summer night silence, which lay for a thousand miles, which covered the earth like a white and shadowy sea. Faster, faster, she went down the steps. Run. She heard music. In a mad way, in a silly way, She heard the great surge of music that pounded at her, and she realized as she ran, as she ran in panic and terror, that some part of her mind was dramatizing, borrowing from the turbulent musical score of some private drama, and the music was rushing and pushing her now, higher and higher, faster, faster, plummeting and scurrying down and down into the pit of the ravine. Only a little way, she prayed. One hundred eight, nine, one hundred ten steps. The bottom. Now run. Across the bridge. She told her legs what to do. Her arms, her body, her terror. She advised all parts of herself in this white and terrible moment, over the roaring creek waters. On the hollow, thudding, swaying, almost alive, resilient bridge planks, she ran, followed by the wild footsteps behind. Behind. With the music following, too. The music shrieking and babbling. He's following. Don't turn. Don't look. If you see him... You'll not be able to move. You'll be so frightened. Just run. Run. She ran across the bridge. Oh God, God, please, please let me get up the hill. Now up the path, now between the hills. Oh God, it's dark and everything's so far away. If I scream now, it wouldn't help. I can't scream anyway. Here's the top of the path. Here's the street. Oh God, please let me be safe. If I get home safe, I'll never go out alone. I was a fool. Let me admit it. I was a fool. I didn't know what terror was, but if you let me get home from this, I'll never go out without Helen or Francine again. Here's the street across the street. She crossed the street and rushed up the sidewalk. Oh God, the porch, my house. Oh God, please give me time to get inside and lock the door and I'll be safe. And there, silly thing to notice. Why did she notice instantly? No time, no time. but there it was anyway, flashing by there on the porch rail the half-filled glass of lemonade she had abandoned a long time, a year, half an evening ago. The lemonade glass, sitting calmly, imperturbably, there on the rail. And she heard her clumsy feet on the porch, and listened, and felt her hands scrabbling and ripping at the lock with the key. She heard her heart. She heard her inner voice screaming. The key fit. Unlock the door. Quick, quick. The door opened. Now, inside, slam it. She slammed the door. Now lock it, bar it, lock it. She gasped wretchedly. Lock it, tight, tight. The door was locked and bolted tight. The music stopped. She listened to her heart again and the sound of it diminishing into silence. Home. Oh God, safe at home. Safe, safe and safe at home. She slumped against the door. Safe, safe. Listen, not a sound safe safe oh thank god safe at home i'll never go out at night again i'll stay home i won't go over that ravine again ever safe uh safe safe home so good so good safe safe inside the door locked wait she looked out the window she looked why there's no one there at all nobody There was nobody following me at all. Nobody running after me. She got her breath and almost laughed at herself. It stands to reason. If a man had been following me, he'd have caught me. I'm not a fast runner. There's no one on the porch or in the yard. How silly of me. I wasn't running from anything. That ravine's as safe as any place. Just the same. It's nice to be home. Home's the really good warm place. The only place to be. She put her hand out to the light switch and stopped. "What?" she asked. "What? What?" Behind her, in the living room, someone cleared his throat.
0: "Well, kiddies, you know what I always say, when you tempt fate, sometimes fate tempts a serial killer to follow you home and make you his next victim." <laughs>